Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. What's the difference between Apple Brandy and Calvados or even Eau de V? We talk to Lou and Margaret Chaty of Westford Hill Distillers in Ashford, Connecticut about all things brandy and much more. And we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. We like to highlight local food and drink here on Connecticut East this week. And on this episode, we're talking all things brandy and gin and vodka, where you get the gist. Westford Hill Distillers is based in the rolling hills and woods of Ashford, Connecticut, and was founded back in 1997 by Lou and Margaret Chaty. Since that time, they have created an amazing range of products and continue to innovate and partner with other local farms and businesses. I visited them and sat down for a chat in their new visitor centre for an educational talk about their products and how they make them. To you both, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to Westford Hill. It is a beautiful place. Just to sort of like give the listeners a bit of an idea, we are sat in a beautifully decorated visitor centre here with a bar and we've got a lineup of your products. We're going to be talking about some of them as well. And outside the window is just miles and miles of gorgeous countryside, which is obviously all part of Westford Hill. Just tell us a little bit, because this has been in the family for a long time, hasn't it? It has been, since 1919, so just over 100 years, when my grandparents first got here. It's a 200-acre property, which has kept pretty much intact since the 1700s when it was first settled. Margaret and I took over stewardship in the 80s and brought the fields back into fields from brush and kind of been rehabbing the farm and looking for ventures in which to... uh, Embark on something with sort of an agricultural bent, and that's uh, our first foray was uh, growing wine grapes in the 80s, and then we discovered craft distillation, and uh, things took off very rapidly from there. So Margaret, explain to us, distillation, distillers, these are words that we hear, but probably none of us know what it means. Well, there's a lot of different definitions of distillers, but really what we're doing is we're creating the spirit of the product. So we are, in our case, for example, making a base wine that we then take to the next level, which is heating it and literally vaporizing the spirit, the essence of the base wine and capturing the distillate, a very high proof, very high alcohol level, but it also enhances the flavors and the aromas of the of the base wine and fruit or whatever that might be. So it's really, a, it's, it's taking it to the next level. We were having a little tour before we sat down, obviously, to do the podcast, and you were saying about you use the whole fruit. So explain, what does that actually mean, and how is that different to something like winemaking? When we bring the fruit in, it comes in in 15 bushel bins, just like you're going into a cider-making process. We take and crush that fruit into the consistency of like an applesauce. We had then have these large wine fermenters, stainless 
stainless steel that we pump that medium into and then cold ferment it, just like you're making a fine base wine. We use different strains of wine yeast, which is dependent on the fruit that we're fermenting at the time, and we create a nice clean base wine with as much flavor that we can capture as possible. And by using the whole fruit, it gives you a lot of different attributes of the fruit. The stems, the skins, the seed, the pulp, the juice all have flavor compounds. And we're making that base wine, and then we're intensifying it through distillation. So as Margaret mentioned, it really is capturing the essence of the fruit itself. And hence, it takes quite a bit of fruit to make a little bit of brandy. We were talking earlier that we have these 1,500-gallon tanks. When I fill that with 300 bushels of fruit and create 1,500 gallons of wine, after we distill that, it distills down to about 50 gallons of an intense spirit. Which is amazing because I don't know if people, when they drink that, realize how much effort and how much fruit and everything goes into that process. I mean, that's that's huge. Well, and that's why brandy, which was the first spirit that we launched our distillery with and what a lot of people know us for, that's why I think brandy is such an undervalued spirit because it really, just like drinking this fruit in just in a different form, and it really does require a lot of effort and a lot of high-quality fermentation and distillation, but it creates a very special product. The other thing we were talking about as well is that, so like in Europe, Calvados is a word that's thrown around a lot. What is Calvados as against, you know, sort of like a brandy? I mean, just explain to us, you know, that. Calvados is a brandy, just like cognac is a brandy. So a brandy, by definition, comes from fruit. In the case of cognac, it comes from grapes. In the case of Calvados, it comes from apples. Calvados is a region of Normandy that produces this apple brandy. Our apple brandies are very similar. We don't use the same apple varieties as they do in Calvados because we don't grow them here. But we've, it was the first distillate of the colonies here. They were distilling apple brandy uh, in Long Island back in the 1600s. And it wasn't until the 1740s when the Germans came into northern mass, they brought rye with them. That's when whiskey production started. So by a good hundred years or more, they were producing brandies here in advance of whiskeys. We have a few markets, and that's one of the definitions of a craft spirits distiller is that Typically, you're not going to make enough to distribute nationally. You really focus on those resources that you can source locally, and then you think about your market as being uh, local, you know, 500 miles radius, for example. When we hear things like small batch, is that Mm -hmm. sort of what we're talking about here? Absolutely, yes. Craft distiller, by definition, likes to source all their raw materials from a 150-mile radius from the distillery. And as Margaret mentioned, we consider our market to be a 500-mile radius for our finished product. So we're always going to be very local-centric and not looking to be a a large national, international brand. Although 500 miles still covers a fair amount of people, doesn't it? And we're very fortunate of our 500-mile radius, as opposed to being in the middle of Kansas, where it happened to be in the middle of New England. (laughs) So we've got some very nice markets with New York and Boston and such, so... Talk to us a little bit about some of the other products you do, because we've spoken about brandy, which is an incredible product, as you've just explained, and one which 
is sadly, you know, obviously underrated by so many people. Hopefully we will change that yeah. once people start listening to this. Talk to us about, because you're doing some, some grain-based uh, We are. Now. So our first grain-based was an organic vodka that we're producing, and that's produced from a strain of organic corn that we found had a very unique profile to it in both aroma and uh, mouthfeel. So it was something we always feel when we produce a product that it needs to have a signature to specific to Westford Hill Distillers. Otherwise, why bother doing it if it's going to taste like something else? In finding this particular strain of corn, it produced something unique, and that's when we decided to jump in to the vodka category with our rhyme organic vodka. In the case of gin, gin is very popular right now. We produce a Westford gin, and there are many, many, many recipes for gin. The legal qualification is it has to be predominantly juniper. With our gin, what we're doing is um, producing a gin in what's called the London Dry style, or I should say the London Dry recipe. What we're doing to give it a, a note of our own is that London Dry calls for a dried citrus rind to be soaked in the base alcohol. We're using a fresh citrus zest. And so that bumps up the citrus component in it, and it also brightens other flavors, sort of like when you spritz lemon on food and it'll pop other flavors, it has the same effect. So whereas a London Dry has a very distinct juniper note to it, ours tends to be a little bit more floral in character. When you decide that you want to do a new product like vodka, like gin, how much effort is involved in that. You've got an amazing setup here, but then what do you have to do to make it happen for that new product? It's considerable, both in expense and in time. Generally, it takes about, from start to finish, anywhere from eight months to a year to get a new product to market. First, you have to develop the product. You know, in the case of our gin, that's a recipe I was playing with for probably two years. Not steady, but on and off before I found something that really struck me. Something like a vodka, it, it took you know several months to develop the, the profile. You've got your product, then you have to think about what sort of package you're going to put it in. And you have to create a label for that. And I should back up. You have to first take that formula that you've created and get a formula approval uh, from the government. They will send that back to you, hopefully within 30 to 60 to 90 to 120 days. Then once you have your approval for the formula, you submit a label that conforms to that formula. That must be approved also. And then once you have that, then you can flesh out your packaging, and now you have a product ready to go. And the final step is getting into distribution, which is the biggest challenge for any producer of alcoholic beverages. The other thing I wanted to pick up on with both of you, other than the distribution, which of course must be an absolute minefield at times, is getting the supply chain at the moment. Obviously, stepping out of COVID over the last two years, how has that affected you? Because even though you know you grow apples and and you use pears and all this, you were saying that you use so many of them, they're coming from other areas. So how's the supply chain affected all of this? Raw materials, it's tap wood has been pretty good. Our farms are still producing. We're local, so we're not shipping cross-country or over the ocean. The backlog is with packaging materials. We don't produce glass bottles here in the U.S., so they're coming from France, from Italy, from China. And we've got a huge backup there. We've got our vodka bottle, for example. I ordered last May. They're saying maybe June of this year it might come in. So we're seeing those sort of delays with packaging, which is considerable. 
And that's very challenging for a small producer like us. We're not buying container ships full of our one single bottle, right? We're buying that in smaller quantities. And because we know that it's important for consumers to build a relationship with us through our bottle, we really you know, take a, a lot of pride in what the packaging looks like. So when we can't source the bottle shapes um, that we're interested in, in featuring, you know, it becomes challenging. In your question to Lou about you know, what it takes to, to launch a product, we have really taken a lot of care from the time we started with, with choosing bottles and also with our label design. We know that people wander up and down the aisles. There's no one there whispering on their shoulder about this brand or that brand unless they've heard advertising, which a lot of people are swayed by that. But if they see a package that is appealing to them, that conveys quality and or is intriguing to them, we feel that that's a place where a small batch producer like us can really shine. And we have received a lot of recognition and a lot of acknowledgement about how unique our bottles are and the approach we take to packaging. Going back to the Apple Brandy, for example, that's a fabric label that we put on our 14-year-aged Apple Brandy product. It just, when you touch it, it feels different than any other bottle on the shelf. And I think that that's, you know, that's part of trying to make people understand that these are hand-bottled, hand-labeled packages, that there's something different about what they're, what they're buying when they buy Westford Hill. Yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying there, Margaret, because although the listeners can't actually see them, we're looking at a lineup here, and the bottles are truly beautifully designed. I mean, I'm looking at the vodka bottle, which I've never seen a vodka bottle that looks like that. As you say, the labels, I mean, the whole thing, you can see that that is not commercially driven. I mean, you know, if if you were to walk into a a liquor store and see commercially made products, they're just not as enticing. I mean, yes, of course, they have a particular look uh, about them, but they're so samey. And you look at this lineup here, everything is different. And it certainly shows. I mean, I'm looking at one particular bottle here, which is sort of heart-shaped with a pear inside it. (laughs) I mean, you just don't see that that often. No, you certainly don't. And this is a a product that we are extremely proud of because this represents one of the wonderful collaborations that we do with another local farmer, in this case, Holmberg Orchards down in Ledyard, Connecticut. And we found this beautiful heart-shaped bottle that could accommodate a full-size, fully grown Bartlett pear inside. And so that, when we found this bottle, we were very excited to launch this product. The Holmbergs actually take this bottle, and when the pears have blossomed toward the end of May, and they drop their petals and they begin to form this little tiny pear, literally as as big as your, your little finger, they slide this bottle over that tiny fruit and fasten it to their pear trees so that, and then of course secure it so that when that pear starts to size, and that happens pretty quickly, you know, after a nice rainfall in early June, they begin to put on some size quite quickly, the pear actually grows inside that bottle. And so this has been a, a wonderful collaboration with a, a fabulous family. They they do a beautiful job. Russell is the fourth generation on his family's orchard. And when we produced this and initially created it, we sent it to California to the Los Angeles International Wine and Spirit Competition. And not only did the brandy, the pear brandy inside, take a gold medal, but we 
received best of show and package design out of 3,500 entries for that bottle. So that's one that is very popular, always eye-catching, and, and something that we're very proud of. It's, it's really a fun product to market. That's a great story. The other thing I wanted to ask you as well, Margaret, or, or maybe Lou wants to answer this question, again, through ignorance and having not drunk a lot of brandy in my life, the ones that I have seen have always been brown in colour, but I'm seeing a lot of clear liquid here. Yeah, so everything comes out of the still perfectly clear. Or as they say, it's even more clear than water as it comes out because it is mostly alcohol. Where you gain color is when you put it in oak barrels. So typically, yes, you're thinking of a cognac and uh, grape brandies as being a brown spirit, which they are. And that comes from the oak aging. So our apple brandy, for example, which sees 14 years in French oak barrels before we release it, is a brown spirit. Anything that's unaged, by definition, is referred to as eau de vie, or the French of water of life. Let's talk about that, because nice little segue there, Lou, because you do eau de vie as well, and I'm looking at a Kirsch eau de vie here. Also, there's an Asian pear eau de vie. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about eau de vie, because people may have heard of it, Yes. probably don't know what it is. It's typically thought of as a European style of brandy, and it goes way back. In France, it's called eau de vie. In Germany, it's called schnapps. has nothing to do with the schnapps you will find locally on the, uh, your local package store. Those are actually cordials. They call it palinka in Eastern Europe. Italians have another. Everyone has their own name for it, but it's an unaged brandy. So you make your base wine, you distill it, and you don't put it into oak barrels. And the reason you don't put a brandy like that into oak barrels is because they distill very intense fruit flavors. And if you were to layer oak over that, it would muddle that. So a Kirsch made from Montmorency cherries has a very nice, bright cherry flavor. The Germans actually use it in culinary, or the French as well, as a substitute for vanilla. So they eat these as much as they drink them. Pear William is a very intense pear flavor. And so you want to capture the essence of the fruit and not muddle it up with any other sort of uh, aging mediums. You said earlier that gin is very much in at the moment. How do you sort of pivot to things like that? I mean, is, is the industry, is the, you know, the drinks industry, does it go through these sort of like swings wildly or are they slower? Yeah. I've been drinking gin for a long time. So, sure. But it's interesting to hear from you that it's the big thing at the moment. It is. A lot of craft distillers are producing gins now. Of course, whiskeys have become immensely popular. Our route to market of producing something like that is, again, to capture some unique quality. And the the reason we got into this is we saw an opportunity with local fruits, for example, initially with eau de vies, that we could produce something something unique to the region. So whenever we go into something like a gin or we do have whiskey that's aging out in the other room, we've got a young organic farmer that's going to be putting in eight acres of organic rye for us in the back field that we'll be producing an estate-grown rye whiskey from. That's when we'll jump into a category. These categories gain in popularity by consumer drive, obviously. You know, when I was first starting in in the wine business, I started in the wine business in the late 80s. The reason I got into the wine business is because there was not a lot of people that had wine knowledge. They were just what they called old whiskey salesmen out there. Well, lo and behold, whiskey is now popular once again. So what was once old and very square is now once again very popular. So you have these consumer trends that will drive 
different categories. Is some of that driven as well? Because we see a lot of celebrities getting into sort of like mm-hmm. the, the liquor game. I mean, I'm thinking of Canadian actor now who's got, I think it's Aviator Gin. And, you know, is some of that driven by celebrity as well? It's, it, that comes after the fact. So you'll never see a celebrity product as an innovator. It's, okay, gin is really popular now. This certain actor is really popular now. Let's combine the two, create a brand. And our exit strategy is to build it up and sell it off for billions of dollars, which is kind of the model. So, no, you won't see them as innovators or trendsetters. Jump on the bandwagon. Exactly. It's a way for differentiating their brand so that it may not be based on a flavor profile difference, one brand to another, but it belongs to you know, a popular celebrity. So it's, you know, it's an interesting industry to be in because as a small player, you know, you're really, you're swimming with the sharks, again, on the shelf at the local wine shop or package store. And it's, there's all kinds of different things that drive people. Consumers, unfortunately, are influenced a lot by what they think they should be drinking as opposed to really trying some things and saying, gosh, I really like this, and, and what can I do with this? That's something, though, that you're trying to change, both of you, though. As we say, we're sat here in the beautiful visitor centre, so when people come here and have a tour, you can help increase their education. And, and let's face it, we probably all need some education when it comes to drinking because we think we know what we like, but, and then we stop there, don't we? So, you know, it's always good if somebody can say, well, try this. Yeah, it's part of it is trying it. And and the other part of it is understanding what goes into producing and how a product is produced. You know, when people hear about our brandies, for example, and we say, you know, there's nothing in this other than wine yeast that we then, you know, fermented, distilled, and then we add water. There's no chemicals, there's no additives, there's no added flavor. So many liquor products have added flavors. And so really trying to get people to understand, you know, what what it means when they see a certain kind of product. But really to get people to trust their own palate and to say, if you enjoy this, you should drink it. You know, they may say, should this be, you know, cold? Should this be out of the freezer? Should it be room temperature? And we say, well, how do you like it? And I think people need to learn to, to trust their own palates as well. But we just know that a lot of folks, including a lot of people in the trade who are selling wine, beer, and spirits, maybe have limited knowledge about what makes spirits different and what sets craft spirits apart. That's a difficult thing, I suppose, to try and, you know, to quickly educate people. Because Mm -hmm. like you said um, earlier, Margaret, people are influenced by what they see. And of course, if it's that mass produced stuff and there's a big advertising campaign behind it, it's very difficult to cut through that noise, isn't it? To then say to people, hey, we can probably teach you a little thing or two. Well, and food and beverage. I mean, we've seen this in the food industry. It's experiential and quality ingredients. Uh, really make a, a big difference and to get people to sit and enjoy what they're eating and enjoy what they're drinking uh, and to understand that it's part of a lifestyle, not just something you pour in a glass. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for helping to educate us in understanding more about brandies and the world of vodkas and gins and, and all those other great things that we take for granted and know very little about. But thank you, Lou and Margaret Chatey, for being on Connecticut East this week. Thank you and thank cheers. You. And Westford Hill Distillers will be opening for the new season the weekend of May 6th. And for details of their opening times and how to contact them to book a tour reservation or tasting, visit their Facebook page by searching for Westford Hill Distillers.
Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT G-O-A-T Acronym Stands for Greatest of All Time As in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner They're my fave Dad You're the GOAT You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same Visit AdoptUSKids.org Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council Hi, Josh and Arielle Wamsley here from Green Valley Tree, LLC. Inviting you to save the date and come along to our open house on Saturday, April 30th from 11 to 2. Come touch a truck and see our yard at 577 Boston Post Road, North Wyndham, and join us for food and fun as we celebrate our growing business. Check out our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com, and we hope to see you there. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... Every number tells a story, a true story. Connecticut by the Numbers explores breakthroughs and challenges, issues and answers. Behind the headlines, across the state, follow the numbers. Connecticut news that counts. ctnumbers.news. Ulysses Hammond, a retired former vice president for administration at Connecticut College, has been announced as the new interim executive director of the Connecticut Port Authority. Hammond was unanimously voted in by the authority's board during a regular monthly meeting and had this to say about his new position. I'm looking at the future and I'm looking from today forward. And I will. I will do all I can to keep the focus on the promise, to keep the focus on the mission, to keep the focus really on what it is that is ahead of us and make sure that we do our work going forward in a way that sustains and increases the public's trust. David Kouros is the chairman of the Port Authority and was pleased with the decision. Ulysses was particularly interested in the interim position and ready to start immediately. His experience in particular at Khan College, I think, suits him very well, having overseen human resources and finance and capital projects. It's a macrocosm of everything that the authority deals with on a smaller scale. Hammond replaces the current executive director, John Henshaw, who will leave the CPO on May 5th to allow for transition between himself and Hammond, who starts immediately at the authority. Hammond has an extensive background in project and financial management, but has no direct experience in harbour or port projects. Apart from his former Con College job, Hammond was an executive officer of the D.C. Superior Court system from 1990 to 2000, a job he was pressured to resign from, according to a February 2000 Washington Post article, after an investigation by the General Accounting Office found financial mismanagement by his department that drew criticism from Congress. A new era in procuring services by the U.S. Navy subbase in New London has begun with state and public companies. Captain Kenneth Curtin is the 53rd commanding officer of the subbase and explained how new intergovernmental support agreements, or IGSAs, will benefit everyone. IGSAs allow military installations to enter into formal public-public partnership agreements with state and local governments for the provision, receipt, and sharing of services. Such strategic regional collaboration and improved government-community relationships fold directly into one of Secretary of the Navy Del Toro's top priorities of strengthening our strategic partnerships. 
The U.S. Navy has signed agreements with the Connecticut Department of Transportation, the Capital Region Council of Governments and Groton Utilities that will save the subbase hundreds of thousands of dollars each year and help support the local economy and jobs. Previously, the Navy had to go through a federal contracting system that was costly, slow and inefficient. Military veterans, local leaders and state senators attended a rededication ceremony of a newly expanded VA community-based outpatient clinic in New London recently. The centre is named after John J. McKirk, who was a Navy diver during World War II and an advocate for veterans' health care in southeastern Connecticut. One of his sons, also named John, said what having this clinic has meant to his father. He loved the idea of an outreach centre. To him, it was so obviously needed, and this was the first one they had, and he pushed hard for that. And now you have six of them. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal was also at the rededication and said centers like these are vital. It is an outpatient clinic, but it is also a means of outreach, and too many of our veterans don't know about it, don't want to use it. They need to know that there is real treatment here for what is important to their quality of life. The New London Clinic was the first of its kind to open in Connecticut back in 1994 and is now one of six others in the state. New London County has the highest density of military veterans than anywhere else in the state. The newly expanded centre has increased in size from 5,000 to 15,000 square feet and offers primary care as well as specialised care services. That's all from this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening.